welcome everyone to the A Better Way to a podcast. We are your hosts, Jordan and Andrew, and today we have Stephen Gutowski with us here today. He is a writer for TheReload.com and a CNN analyst and contributor. Thanks for He's coming on. He's the founder of The Reload, by the way. Yes. Oh, I didn't want to inflate his head too big if he wasn't, you know, <laughs> if he wanted to give credit to the other people. But yes, yeah, the founder invented, of The Reload. invented reloading. <laughs> yes. Yes. Stephen, thank you writer. for joining it's us. It's all today. good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. One thing, as we were talking about earlier, just to catch the folks up that don't listen to the Patreon stuff. One of the things that I found to be a huge breath of fresh air about the reload.com was the fact that your reporting style is not sensationalized and it is very nuts and bolts. And that's something that I appreciate uh, constantly talking about how sensationalized media is nowadays. It's nice to go somewhere to read about the issues that are affecting the gun community and not leave feeling like you're supposed to believe things in a certain way. Is that something that going into it you wanted to provide or is that just something that's a byproduct of, of the way that you write and the things that you believe? Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of both. I mean, it's definitely something where we attempt to write about firearms policy and politics and culture as well from a sober and serious point of view, right? That's our intention. And it's also born out of the fact that we focus more exclusively on hard news reporting. So we do our best to break news at the reload. Like we're not aggregating news or commenting on news. We're reporting news and then also analyzing that news as well. And so it's sort of a byproduct of that. We're not necessarily going to be sensationalizing everything to try and get attention. We're, we try to get attention by breaking stories that are important. Right? No, and it absolutely makes sense. And that to me, you know, somebody who's looking for something like that is the reason I would go back and seek more knowledge from TheReload.com. Yeah, I mean, like, basically what happened with The Reload is, like, I'd worked in news for a while before I started The Reload. I founded it back in April 2021, and I'd had, like, a decade of experience in writing in, in D.C. and in politics, and and I just found that there was a pretty big gap in the market as far as guns are concerned because on the one hand, you have a lot of major media outlets where they can understand the politics of what's going on on the Hill pretty well, right? They understand what bills are moving and where, how things are, the ins and outs of D.C., and they can report on that fairly well. You can follow a bill's progression and understand whether it has a chance of passing or not by, by following those outlets. But they don't know much about firearms. I don't know if you've noticed not that. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> most most major media outlets and their reporters, honestly, more out of ignorance than bias, in my opinion. You know, certainly you have people, especially on the opinion side, where it's just bias and they just have a political view of guns and they're not willing to consider anything else. But your average reporter, your beat reporter, your person who's actually breaking news, the bigger problem with them is that they're just they're not very well informed about firearms. Right, They probably don't own any guns. They might not have even shot a gun before. They might not know a lot of gun owners or realize that they know them. And so they're just pretty, they're just coming from a place where they don't have that knowledge and it's much easier to make mistakes that way. And I'm talking about like very base levels. Like stuff, factual right? errors. Yeah, I mean the difference between oh, semi-automatic yeah, and fully automatic. Popular one. Or fully semi-automatic. Thing that, yeah, right in the middle. <laughs> yes, or full semi-automatic. Right. 
I'm actually the one who pointed out that mistake <laughs> really? when it first happened back <laughs> the full semi-auto thing, yes. And to be fair to the outlet, that was actually CNN who did that report. But it was the military yeah, contributor so-called guy experts. who this, some general. People often assume, like, this is one of the big things you see in cable TV, is, like, everyone assumes that if you are former law enforcement or former military, that you Go are off, an King. expert on oh, firearms. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. anyone who... Uh, knows anything about former law enforcement or former military is that's often not the case, especially so if you were like a general, right? Like this, this dude was a general and I'm sure he's brilliant when it comes to military planning and strategy, but the, probably the last time he'd fired a gun before that segment was when he was in basic training, like generals, three-star guys are not out there you know, working yeah, on exactly. your modus or whatever. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. So, I mean, there's a general assumption in media that you get a lot of like, oh, somebody who carried a gun for, or had a job that related to firearms in some way must know everything about guns. And it's obviously not true. <laughs> um, but the bigger problem is just a general lack of knowledge, in my opinion. And so that's what you get from major media, right? Is this sort of misunderstanding of the issue just really on every level, right? How guns function, what gun laws are, and even like the politics of guns. Like, yeah, they might understand how a bill moves through the Senate or or whether or not some piece of legislation has enough support to pass the House or the whether something's going to get rolled into the latest omnibus or the, the military spending bill. You know, a lot of these little tricks that they used to get legislation passed in D.C. It's not, you sort of must, if you put it in with a must-pass Legislation has a better chance of passing, but there's those ins and outs. There's a lot of reporters who know a great deal about that stuff, but they don't know the nuts and bolts of firearms. And at the same time, on the other side, in gun media, you may have noticed this as well, that they're not as politically savvy on what's going on with DC. That's one way to put it, yeah. Right. Uh, You know, you get a lot of, like, stories in gun media where because some backbench— Democrat in Kentucky proposed a bill, that means that, one, not only do all Democrats everywhere support this bill, but but also that it's not only has a good chance of becoming law, but that it already is law. These stuff things get reported a lot. You see this all the time. Like, the black helicopters are coming tomorrow to round up all your guns because this one Democrat somewhere or workers party representative or what, you know, some fringe person introduced a crazy bill. Look, Sometimes bills being introduced can be meaningful. I think the most recent one where I saw this was actually it was my congressman, unfortunately. Don Beyer in Virginia, Virginia Democrat, he introduced a bill that has a 1,000% tax on so-called assault weapons, right? And this was in the news a lot. And this is like a, at least an edge case where it's like, this has literally zero chance of passing because I don't know if you've heard about this, but the Democrats do not control the House of Representatives anymore. And so their fringe bill trying to impose an obviously unconstitutional thousand percent excise tax on the sale of certain guns is not going to go anywhere at all. But, you know, Bayer is not an insignificant player. He's not a, one of the most famous members of Congress, but I'm sure he'll get some co-sponsors and maybe some big names on there. I'd have to look at the bill, but... So sometimes messaging bills are a thing, and it and it matters. But most of the time, what you'll see in gun media is just like complete misunderstanding of how gun politics work, uh, just basic operation of government. 
And so they'll know how firearms work pretty well, right? Like they might be able to tell you the muzzle velocity of a 5.56 round, right? But they're probably not going to be able to tell you the political breakdown of the Illinois Supreme Court, right? Or whatever. And so that's where I saw a gap. And that's what the reload is about. It's like trying to be a publication where we understand both how firearms function. Like I'm a certified firearms instructor and I like to build guns for fun. You know, I built this AR here. I know people can't see this. We can see it. But just imagine the most beautiful (laughs) uh, (laughs) standard AR-15 that you've ever seen. I shoot and I enjoy firearms. And and so I have the knowledge of that, but I've also spent my career reporting on politics, on DC, on, on policy. So I have a good understanding of that as well. And that's what the reload tries to, to do, is to fill that gap, to be knowledgeable about both firearms and about politics at the same time. And that actually answers in detail kind of the first question that we wanted to get into about factual errors in mainstream media when covering guns. And in your position is that mostly it's ignorance, maybe even well-meaning ignorance, not necessarily bias or any kind of like deception or malice, right? I think so. In a lot of like, you know, there's also, I'm more of a print reporter in my career. I know that obviously I have the CNN contract now, so I do TV too. But I've always had a soft spot for print reporting, and and I think that most print reporters who are usually at CNN, I will say, is a little bit special in that I've actually seen CNN news anchors break news stories, which is pretty uncommon in TV news. So that's also one thing I actually genuinely like about the <laughs> the network that impresses me about it. But but most of your breaking news stories come from the print side. And, you know, I don't think that most reporters are trying to actively deceive their audience. I don't think they want to get things wrong. I don't think they want to be embarrassed yeah, of course right, about the news stories that they put out. It comes down to just a lack of knowledge. And honestly, it's sort of a structural problem in our industry. And I've been talking about this for a long time. I was on the cover of Time Magazine a couple of years back in, I think it was 2018, when they did their Guns in America cover. And it wasn't just me. There was other, a lot of other people. But but we did an interview for that. And this is the issue I brought up, which is like, in the gun industry, take this, for example. Unions, right? Labor, right? They're probably, I think there's 7% of the country reports having a union member in their household, off the top of my head here. You can look up the numbers later, but I believe that's the last poll I saw on the issue. Still a very significant number of people, and unions are a very politically influential group, and they, covering them matters a lot. So you, you get a lot of labor reporters, right? Basically every major outlet has a labor reporter. Most of them have multiple labor reporters, right? And they focused all of their time on reporting about labor issues, Right. But how many people report having a gun in the home? Associated Press, their most recent poll to ask this question had 46 percent report having a gun, which is not insignificant. So which is way more than people having a union member in their household. Right. How did they gather that info, though? Like surveys. They asked people polling. And look, there's uh, and we can talk about that, too, with um, there was actually just a recent study that indicated that some Americans don't tell pollsters that they own a gun that they're not comfortable doing it. And so, you know, the number is maybe even larger than that, 46%, right? Uh, But even at 46%, that's almost half the country. And how many news outlets, Washington Post, the Associated Press, the New York Times, whoever, Los Angeles Times, whoever whoever you want to pick, 
how many of them have firearms beat reporters that just focus on firearms? Yeah. Like, literally none. Unless you're so I've a, seen, like, individuals <laughs> make, like, a project out of some gun story at different points in time, but that doesn't mean that that is yeah, their beat. Not their beat. And this is, this is what I'm getting at with the structural problem. So why are reporters fairly ignorant on firearms, right? I don't think it's because reporters are just stupid generally, <laughs> right? That's yeah. not my opinion. I would hope not. <laughs> I hope not, yeah. It's more that, so look at the media landscape and look at what they consider, especially a national news story related to firearms. Really just one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mass shootings. And you get some stories here or there that beyond that, if there's some significant legislation, that'll make national news, although that often is tied to mass shootings as being the central theme for legislation and why it matters as a story. But so, all right, mass shooting happens. They're not frequent enough, not the ones that get covered by national media, at least. We can talk about definitions and stuff as well. It's in the notes. We can absolutely do that. But whatever your definition is, the ones that actually get coverage are not the sort of, well, there's a mass shooting. There's like three a day or whatever. Some of these counts. The ones that get national attention, they probably happen about five to ten times a year if you look at the numbers. So you don't have people who do that as their entire beat, like as their entire reporting you know, resume. And so what you get are usually general assignment reporters, you know, people who are just going out and reporting all, all kinds of stuff. They get their assignment editor comes in and says, all right, we're going to send you to do this mass shooting and Florida or wherever, in California. So they just get dropped in from 30,000 feet, and that's their whole context. And they don't spend enough time reporting on guns to develop that knowledge that you need to do it Yeah, they get a little bit of information from whichever police officer is on scene as the public information officer, and they get some of the fast statistics and data and report on that. Yeah, and they're just going off of tropes and stuff that they see, and they don't have a, a great deep understanding of guns And so you get bad reporting because that's my thought. That's my main reason why I think you see so much poor reporting on the issue of firearms in America, because especially from national outlets. And that's one of the things I've tried to change in my career. And and look, I've always been a big advocate of trying to inform other reporters, doing my best to. And maybe this goes back to, you know, what you're talking about with how we present things at the reload, because I do the same thing when I'm talking to other reporters. I try to give them as best I can, a proper understanding of the situation without trying to twist it into whatever narrative I want to sell somebody, right? And so I've been talking to reporters from every major outlet since I started doing this. And I find that they're usually receptive to that sort of information. Like they want to be better informed on an issue. They don't want to get things wrong. They don't want to get called out. And they don't want to misinform their audience. You know, any good reporter wants to share the facts with their audience. They might have a different perspective than you or I on the right solutions or whatever. Personally, I'm sure everyone has personal opinions on these things. But they don't want to be factually inaccurate when they go to press. And the industry could benefit a lot from just having reporters who focus on guns in America as a beat. You've seen this before. The Guardian had a a beat reporter who her role was mainly to focus on the gun control movement and report on them from like a standpoint of doing it all the time. And her reporting was better for it because it was more knowledgeable, whether 
whether or not it was like the reporting wasn't designed to sell guns or gun rights to people. It was designed to track the gun control movement. But but she became much more knowledgeable over time just from the fact that she was focused on this issue. Do you think that there is something that because one thing that I've noticed in we try to be proponents of the opposite where it's not uncommon for me personally. And the idea that I try to promote is to reach across the aisle. I'm doing air quotes here for people who can't see on the gun control debate and talk to people who we disagree with and be empathetic with them towards their concerns. But one thing that I don't see really is that coming back across the aisle from the gun control side. And when it does, it's kind of bad faith, right? Yeah, and in contrast, you know, you've got a lot of these well-funded gun control groups. It seems like specifically doing the opposite, constantly demonizing gun owners, constantly, I wouldn't say misleading, but I would say we were talking about definitions of mass shootings and school shootings. There are different definitions. There isn't one agreed-upon definition of what a school shooting is. Some jurisdictions report a school shooting as any shooting that happened within two blocks of a school, and others only count ones where there are casualties. And when you have such vastly different metrics to measure an incident on, you're going to have vastly different data. And, and what, it, you know, what it seems like is, sorry to cut you off, Andrew. It's not like I was... No, you're good. <laughs> fin- fin- you finished. I know. Finish. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> we see them choosing, obviously, the side that's going to make their numbers look better. Would it not benefit some of these organizations, in your opinion, to be a little bit more frank and say, hey, the data might not show exactly what we want it to show, but this is honesty, and that's what we're trying to be here. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's always, from a reporter's perspective, I would always prefer that people be as forthright as possible in their statistics and their messaging. Of course, that doesn't happen really across the board with any political organization, right? They're always trying to to spin things in their direction. And you absolutely see it with the gun control groups, sure. And that's why you need reporters who are willing to to write about the inaccuracies or the, the problems with this. I mean, I remember doing a story or you know, breaking this news about it was a, a Super Bowl ad that every town had run a couple of years back, I think it was 2018. Because you get into a lot of the debates about these numbers, right, the, and definitions and stuff. That, that kind of, yeah, a lot of that, like you're alluding to here, is, becomes pretty important in these debates over firearms in America. And one of them is uh, the statistic about Firearms death among children. Yeah, right? unfortunately. You hear this talked about a lot. And and this is another one where it really depends on how you define this. And you have to be careful about your numbers based on the point that you're trying to make. And you see this all the time with, with all kinds of arguments about firearms deaths, because the problem with that is obviously when you just talk about firearms death or firearms mortality, you're lumping in all forms of firearms deaths, which, as I'm sure anyone who listens to a podcast like this would understand by now, uh, most deaths are suicide. Most firearms deaths are suicide. Now, the the, por- the actually, the proportion changed in 2020 when it was only 53%, according to the CDC, but usually it's around two-thirds. And then, obviously, most of the rest are murders, firearm homicide. And then, really, a fairly small proportion these days are firearms accidents, and so when you're talking about children and firearms deaths, you got to be pretty specific about what you're getting at, for, depending on what argument you're trying to make, right? And so this Super Bowl ad, it was a story of a mother who lost her son to, well, he was murdered in a dispute with other people when he was, actually, I believe he was 19 at the time, the person in the story. 
And look, obviously that doesn't make the loss any of course right. easier to bear yeah. for his mother. And that's not the point at all, of course, in noting these things. But first of all, the, the way they portrayed it, they showed pictures of him when he was a little kid, and they sort of implied that he died when he was younger. But also the main issue with the ad was that they had claimed at the time that, that firearms were the leading cause of death among children, when the actual truth was that that's not the case. It wasn't the case at the time. And what they had done was cut out teens. I saw this. From this statistic. Now, this is just the stats that they used in the ad were just factually wrong, which is a big problem. But also, like, I think that it can be dishonest when you're trying to... The way that they presented that made it seem like firearm accidents were the problem. You're talking about young kids dying from firearms. Most people associate that with firearm accidents. And this was a 19-year-old who was murdered. And so... You just, I think from my perspective, reporting on these things is what I want to do is give people the proper context of all this stuff. Like, it doesn't mean that, I mean, because from one perspective, obviously, it's like, well, okay, if it's a leading cause of death or the second leading cause of death, how much does that matter to you from a policy? It's like what policies you support in response to this. Like, it might not make much of a difference at all in your, how you decide what to advocate for. But you should know what the truth is. And that's where I think this stuff matters a lot more. And I'll give you an even starker example. California, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. And you see gun control groups use the same line of reasoning constantly. But the governor himself does it very often. He did it earlier this year in the wake of several mass shootings that happened in California, where he was arguing that California, which has, as most people understand, the strictest gun laws in the country, right? Or at least among the strictest. It's sort of, there are several states that are- Yeah, Massachusetts right is going for that title. Massachusetts, Hawaii, there's a couple others that are, New Jersey would be another one, New York. But they're all in the top tier, let's say. And he likes to argue, and did argue after these mass shootings, that that is why California's firearm mortality rate is below- the national average, right? But the problem with this is that California's firearm homicide rate is not that low. It's not below the national average. It's pretty well in line with their neighbors, like, for instance, Nevada and Arizona, where they have basically the complete opposite in terms of firearms policies. California's firearms mortality rate is low because it has a low firearm suicide rate. Now, you could obviously still argue that that's because of its gun laws, and maybe you can have that debate. But I think it's fairly misleading the way a lot of these statistics are presented. And there's examples on the other end, too, of course. Even that child and teens thing, that actually did become true, at least for a short period. Recently, right? Last, yeah, 2021, 2022. I think it was 2021. It became true that under 18, the leading cause of death was firearms. Now, of course, it's also still important to explain the context there. Why did that become the case? It wasn't from, for instance, a huge spike in accidental shootings among five-year-olds or whatever, which, which frankly, I think is more of what course. people think of when they think right. of like minors and firearm deaths. Now, or at least when you say you children, have an image of a child that, in your you know, head, you don't have an image of right. a right, and that, that's another thing that it's like. Yeah. At least this stuff gets complicated because it's like I'm trying to with a lot of these definitions things. Like I want to think through like what is the average person going to think when I say this, 
And for me, when you talk about children dying from firearms, you think of smaller children, first of all, where the mortality rate among fire for firearms is relatively low. And you think of like accidents, usually, like somebody getting a hold of their parents' gun, shooting themselves or someone else. And maybe you think of like someone murdering their children. I don't think most people think of a 15-year-old who, you know, is around a bad group of people and got involved with illegal guns and things like that, which, I mean, if you look up the data, the data suggests that. I mean, it's unfortunate, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, that's what the spike was. It was the murder spike, which was a general murder spike that we saw across all age groups. Also, basically, the murder spike affected the groups, unfortunately, that were already most affected by murders, which tends to be younger men who live in urban areas and are minorities. That's where you get the most concentrated issue with murder. And so, yes, children's firearm mortality increased to the point where it was the leading cause briefly. I believe it's gone back down, if I'm remembering correctly. People can check this with the CDC's numbers on their website. But the reason that it got to that point was because there was an increase in murder. And it was an increase in murder among older teenagers. So, and again, it goes back to sort of, I think, the point you were trying to make at the beginning here. Like, doesn't mean that this is not terrible. Right. Like, there's of a course. story there, not right? A horrible like, that's thing, that's, that's worth talking about. Yes. It just is about contextualizing things and making sure that people understand what's actually being said here. And it's not that we should not care about the murder spike right. among 15 to 18-year-olds, right? Obviously, we should. It's just that maybe criminalizing people who don't lock up their guns around five-year-olds is not going to seriously affect the murder rate of 15-year-olds. The right. overall number. That's a good point. And yeah. that's exactly, I think, the idea that I want to get at when I'm trying to like work through how to present numbers and how to fact-check statistics is like, in the context of where these numbers are being put forward, does this actually give people the right understanding of what's happening or is this misleading them and that's where like mass shooting counts i think come into play significantly here you know i've talked about this a lot and like people can have good faith disagreements of course on all this stuff and there's no perfect honestly i use the violence projects definition it's it's the definition that the federal government has used in a number of studies that it's commissioned including the violence project itself which is Four more people killed in a single incident that's not related to some sort of crime, like a gang shootout or something of that nature. You want to sort of like eliminate cases where people were caught in the crossfire between like two people who shouldn't have been shooting at each other. Yeah, and also like is a act in public. Because actually, if you just do four more killed, and look, honestly, people should look through all these standards and have as long as you understand what they're saying, they can be useful. Four more killed if you just use that, right, the sort of um, spree killing, mass killing, right? There's an FBI definition for mass killing, which is four more people killed. And if you just use that, actually most mass shootings wouldn't be what people think of. They would be instead essentially family. Yeah, it's yeah that's the family first thing I thought It's basically of. where you kill your family, which of is course. terrible, right? But it's that's the most common situation where four more people are killed every year. And you get probably around 40 of those a year on average, just have four more killed. And then like two-thirds of those end up being somebody murdered themselves and their whole family, which is, honestly, it's a societal yeah, issue that probably right. should I mean, get that's more attention. That's, it that's horrible. How funny is it that we have to preface talking about things like this by saying constantly, that is a terrible thing and we should address that, but that's not what yeah, I believe. Not, because <laughs> it's <laughs> trying to downplay the murder no, yeah, of the entire family. We actually made a post, I think, last year 
or it might have been at the beginning of this year where we addressed the fact that people were saying that firearms were the number one killer of children. And in it, addressed the nuance that it's not necessarily because kids are dying in accidents, but that all of this other data went into that number. And at the end of it, essentially just saying like, listen, we have to do better, but not necessarily just from a safety standpoint where you have to lock up your guns because that's a personal decision. And I don't think the government should necessarily be involved with that. And it's also incredibly difficult to enforce until something bad happens. But also just to say like, listen, this is largely a community issue and we need to do better for our communities if we want to prevent this kind of stuff and figure out why kids are getting involved in these situations in the first place and look into preventing that. And the amount of people who took it as we're advocating for universal yeah. lockup of your guns and people saying, well, like, they also like, included 18-year-olds. No, like and a liberal they now, also, Yeah, 18-year-olds aren't kids and it's the CDC. Are you really going to trust them and all this stuff? And, you know, we were just saying, listen, like, this is the information people who are trying to take away your rights are using. You might as well understand it and be able to look at the context of it. And the context is important. This is my whole thing about statistics. Context, right? The numbers aren't saying anything by themselves. Like, you have to interpret that, and you have to say something. So it's not a crime to, like, cherry-pick data. It's not ethically, like, bad to, like, massage the definition a little bit until you get what you're looking for. You just have to explain what you did when you present that data to somebody. Don't ever use that phrase again. You know? right. What? Massage the data massage until you get the, the information oh, you you're like looking that? for. You it like, really makes me feel uncomfortable. You don't like to think about me massaging data? Don't massage my data. <laughs> But so, yeah, I mean, I think that's the key idea here is like, I don't like I'm not trying to manipulate the numbers so that people think whatever way I want them to think. What I'm trying to do is explain right. these different calculations Absolutely. so that everybody can at least understand what is being said here. Like you could still, as we've said a number of times, you just pointed out, you can still find this to be really bad. And yeah, I don't care what policy you believe in. It's your prerogative, right, on what the solution should be. I can talk through what the different solutions are, but that my role is a, is to inform people, right, not to advocate for certain things one way or the other in terms of policy. And so my role at the Reload and what I try to do is give that context. Like, so you've got the four more killed and you're going to get, if you count that way, which you could even say that's a fairly arbitrary number. Yeah. Like why four? A lot of these are arbitrary things that people should understand that from the get-go. It's like, all right, yeah, the FBI says that four more people killed in a single incident or in quick succession is a mass murder. Okay, that's where it comes from. Now, they don't have a specific mass shooting definition. They do have, like I said, the federal government has used a couple of times the four more killed in a public shooting that's not crime-related. These guys are not all working from a template. They're going out and doing crimes that they want to do, and then to record that, you work backwards from that, and you try to make categories that you can fit all these these disparate incidences in, right? I mean... Right. And look, I think the violence project definition gets you closest to what the average person thinks of as a mass shooting, because that's what gets covered on TV, right? Not all of them, but that's where... Most of these will fit into that definition, like Vegas shooting or Parkland or Uvalde or these horrible incidents are going to be where a lot of people are killed. And the big problem that most people have with how this gets covered and how activists on the gun control side talk about it is that is obviously the, the number that most commonly gets used, which is that there's more mass shootings than there are days in the year. And I don't know what the latest count is for this year. I think it's like 400 something, I guess I could look it up, but that statistic 
is based on a completely different definition. So they have right now Gun Violence Archive, which is the most popular database for mass shootings to be cited in media generally. They have it at 441 so far as of August 14th, 2023. Whereas the Violence Project has their count at six. Wow. Right? Yeah. And yeah, so this gets into why this distinction matters a lot. And so what? why are they such massively different numbers? Well, the six comes from four or more killed in a single incident in public that's not crime-related, right, essentially. And then mass shootings, according to the Gun Violence Archive, that's four or more injured in a single incident, and they don't have the distinction for whether it's criminal violence or whatever. So they're encompassing way more events. Now, like I said at the top of this, like that doesn't mean that this count is completely useless, but also if you're saying that there are 441 mass shootings every year to the, so far this year, but you're a national publication, you've only covered like four or five of them. I mean, I think you're, maybe your real definition isn't that 441 number. But regardless, like people should just understand it at least. And then you also, like to me, one of the complaints that the people who developed the broader definition had of the more limited definition was that, like, oh, well, this is based on people dying. So like modern medicine is improved and fewer people are going to die when they get shot sort of thing, sort of the argument they have. And it doesn't really get at the core of like people trying to carry out these attacks. And I think that's a fair point. And honestly... If you want to get an idea of how often something like this, like somebody tries to do something like this, if that makes sense, that it really gives you a better picture of the problem, you probably want to use the active shooter count from the FBI, which they put out every year. So you'd have to wait until next year. But like interesting, last year, the number of incidents went down a bit of active shooter because active shooter, there's another definition for that, right? It's, it's basically somebody who's trying to kill people at random in public in a shooting attack. And so that's basically mass shooters are people who, under the violence project definition, are basically people who successfully carried out an active shooting. And so interesting last year, and some of this is kind of like, there's a randomness to it to some degree because there were fewer incidents last year, but more people were harmed or killed in those incidents. So was it a better year for active shooters than the previous year? I mean, fewer attempts but more impact. So, yeah, you know, to me, it's like people should understand this. And what the Gun Violence Archive is tracking, to me, is kind of a more general violence. So if there's more violence going on, you're probably going to have a lot more incidents where four more people are injured in a single incident, right, than if you have less violence generally. So it can still be something of a, a tell, or at least, like, you're definitely getting a lot of incidents where maybe gang-related shootings or crime-related shootings where the, like, one of the big distinctions to me is, like, a mass shooting like Uvalde or or uh, Vegas or something. Is people are, there's a specific intent to kill as many people as possible in that sort of general group that you're shooting at, whereas I think a lot of the shootings that get captured in the Gun Violence Archive are more like drive-by type shooting or a shootout sort of situation where the attackers don't care if they hurt a lot of people. They're specifically trying to hurt a targeted group. And it's less about trying to inflict as much damage on just everyone around as possible as it is about going after the, those individual people, if that makes sense. So, again, <laughs> not 
to say that the problem is not significant, but it's different. And this is what I always get at with these things. It's like the solutions are going to be different too. Like the solution to bringing down the murder rate generally, stopping street crime, is very different, presumably, from the solution to stopping a mass shooter, like someone who's going out to attempt a spree killing, right? And it's very different, I would imagine, although not, you know, maybe there's, there's, I'm sure there's crossovers here, but it's very different from trying to prevent someone from shooting themselves. And that's where all this stuff really matters. Yeah, for sure. And I kind of wonder, so we're talking about like providing context and to some extent like being transparent. Do you think that these organizations that present this data, that track this data and then present it in whatever way they choose, do you think they have a responsibility, I guess, to be transparent and to explain like why they came to the number they came to? And if they do have a responsibility and they're not doing that, what do you think the problem is? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has a responsibility to be honest with their audience, right? And uh, not that that's what everyone will do. I mean, that's almost certainly not what political actors will ever do. <laughs> and that's why we need reporters and people to hold them accountable for the mistruths or misleading things that they've said. And that that's the key balancing fact. It's like you have to have people out there that can point out when they aren't giving you the full context and explain why it matters. Then that's what I view the role of media as being, whether it's politicians or political interest groups of whatever stripe. That's how I ideally see the role of the media is that that's what you're supposed to do. That's why, that's why you exist. And look, you know, and each side can do it to the other side too. You get that sort of interplay happens, of course, and you have to, and yeah, you get a lot of bad faith. Yeah, certainly. But And you have to understand that when you're going into it, right? You have to understand the motivations of wherever information is coming from. It doesn't mean that they're lying, but you should understand what their, their interests are in whatever information is coming from them. And this is, that's just sort of basic reporting. Whether, and that's whether it's an organized group or an individual source or whatever. Like you got to, everyone's trying to play you to some degree. <laughs> And so you got to be, you have to understand that and factor that in. And sometimes that means you can't trust what they're telling you or you need more information or whatever. But yeah, I mean, to me, the role of the reporter is to to try and inform people. And the role of an activist is try to convince somebody of something. And sometimes that's by informing them. And sometimes it's scaring them. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there is a, for one, I think it's fairly easy from an outside perspective to tell the difference between a reporter and an activist only because like we were saying before, the emotion that is invoked in reading an activist's writing. But I find it difficult in the conversations that I've had with people to say, listen, here's this website called the reload.com. I think they do a very good job of pointing out this situation in the nuance and the context involved in it. Take a look at it. I think you'll be better informed than you are now. And actually getting that person to be like, okay, I'm going to click on this website called thereload.com and not MSNBC or whatever. So I think it's really important that people like you are involved as a resource to these mainstream media outlets that people listen to who do have these deeply emotional beliefs involving guns and specifically being pro-gun control. Because 
I wish they utilized you way more often than they do. And I'm not talking about CNN specifically. I'm talking about media in general, what people listen to to get their information from. Because there are so many people like you out there who I do believe are very balanced and informed individuals and organizations that bring that sort of context to the situation. But like we were saying before, I don't see that as like most news stations don't have a beat reporter on guns, don't have somebody who's like a go-to for the majority of gun information, unless it's this breaking gun legislation that's that's creating a lot of hype or a mass shooting. And I think because of that, we kind of skip a lot of the foundational knowledge that people need to make well-informed decisions. It also kind of helps these gun control organizations prey on their less informed followers and specifically the people who donate money to these people. Because I don't think, we spoke about this today, actually, I don't think the majority of these people are ill-intentioned. I think they do want to save people, but they are misdirected into thinking that me donating $20 a month to this organization that's trying to ban AR-15s is going to achieve that. So how do we move forward, do you think? How do we kind of support this idea that, you know, it sounds crazy to even say that it should be something that needs to be supported, but how do we further the progress into this direction where we have more knowledgeable people in the gun industry being used as as resources for gun legislation, for these groups that are reporting on mass shootings? How do we incorporate more of us with them? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question in terms of like, how do you have an impact on media coverage if you're somebody who wants to see a, a better informed media landscape out there? And my approach has always been to try and Talk to anyone who wants to talk to me, you know, within reason, obviously. You don't want to get in a situation where someone is trying to use you in bad faith or something like that. <laughs> like, or end up on a... Who's the guy that does oh, Borat? Oh, Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. you don't want to end up on Sasha Baron Cohen's show. That being said, were his skits were, were hilarious, getting that, like, self-defense instructor. or No, 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 he was the Israeli self-defense instructor, and he got that conservative politician. Anyway, yes. Yes, and you don't want to end up like, there was a Katie Couric documentary a couple of years back. I broke this story about how she had uh, selectively edited I remember an that. interview with a group of Virginia yeah, gun rights. So, so it was, so, if I remember right, it was like they had like some pro-gun people in the room and someone anti-gun asked them like a pointed question. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. Katie Couric asked them this pointed question about like, well, don't you think firearms are bad and you're bad or something like that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it was, she asked them like about how you would stop criminals from getting guns without universal right. background And then it checks, went I like, done, done, done. And it panned all over like their dumb faces. And that's not really what yeah, happened. More or but less. Like- <laughs> it was basically, she sat down and did an interview with activists from the Virginia Citizens Defense League, which is a gun rights group in Virginia. And when that interview made it into the documentary, it's called Guns Down. And there was a section in there where she they set up this transition to another section of the documentary by having her pose this question and then panning around the gathered group of gun rights advocates and activists to make it seem as though they had no answer. They inserted a pause and then they cut to another section, which was a problem because, I mean, to be, and the VCDL people, the gun rights people, you know, my point here was to like, Talk to everybody within reason, right? Like if you look up the person, they have a bad reputation of trying to take people out of context or whether they're not trustworthy, consider all of that before you agreed to talk to them. But in this context, they had a backup, which is that they recorded the whole interview themselves and published that once the documentary came out and the audio that they had, the raw audio showed 
that actually several people immediately answered her question. And so the cut in the documentary was very misleading because it made it seem as though she had stumped them with this question when in reality they had answers. Feels like you're watching an episode Uh, of The Bachelorette. Yeah, it's very (laughs) much like a reality TV show sort of tactic. But yeah, and that, that was a big problem because this was supposed to be like a news documentary and Katie Couric is supposed to be a news reporter. So anyway, the point is like, be prepared when you go into an interview, but be available. Like I'll go and talk to anyone and I'll interview people on my podcast, you know, the Weekly Reload podcast. We have people from all sorts of different backgrounds and perspectives. Mainly I do that to help inform my audience of all the different perspectives that exist out there, the different arguments that exist. We, I had the guy who runs Gun Violence Archive on my show to talk through these issues that we were just going over and get his point of view. Now, this is also in connection to a major story that we broke about the CDC changing defensive gun use numbers or removing them from the website after private lobbying from Mark Bryan at Gun Violence Archive and others. And so, you know, the point is, like, I don't believe in walling yourself off or not talking to to people, even if you think that they're, you're not going to agree with them or whatever, like you can, especially if it's a reporter who's trying to do a story and, you know, you can help them by giving them resources to understand the issue better. Because I guarantee that they're getting those resources from other people, right? The gun control groups are not shy about talking to reporters and nor should they be. Like that's that's what you should do if you're an advocate. Like you should go out and try to make your case to a reporter And the better you can make your case, especially if you stick to, like, provable facts instead of your opinions on, like, you know, give your perspective. That's key. But if somebody makes a mistake in a report and they call an AR-15 a shotgun or vice versa, which is another thing that has happened, that happens a lot, especially at, like, local media, go ahead and try and help them or correct what the mistake was and do it in a way that doesn't make them want to hate you. I don't know. (laughs) It seems like a pretty... Yeah. Baseline thing. Reporters are people. Weird concept. Like, yeah. That even if you end up being right, if you're a big jerk to them, they're not probably going to appreciate it very much. Well, just on a human level. But, but yeah, I mean, like, go out and get involved and talk to media if, when you can, when you have opportunities to do that. And be credible. Build a credible reputation. That's another big thing. Like, if you're going out there and you're making crazy claims and saying and being really aggressive and stuff, like you're gonna not going to get as far <laughs> with influencing. A lot of this stuff just comes down to, like, basic concepts of influencing other people. But, yeah. Hey there, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you do like what we're about and want to support us, our Patreon is a fantastic way to do so. It allows us to improve the podcast in many ways and helps fund our alcoholic coffee beverage stash to assist on those late-night recording sessions. Now, you may be thinking, this podcast has me absolutely smitten and I would love nothing more than to throw money at you, but what's in it for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you become a patron, you automatically get access to an exclusive collection of clips from the podcast not heard anywhere else. On top of that, we have a wide range of tiers available that will get you merch, discount codes, and even free gear delivered to you monthly. For any patrons currently listening to this, we are super thankful for your support and for keeping the dream alive that one day I will be able to meet Andrew and make sweet, sweet podcast magic with him in person. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash abetterway2a in the episode notes for the podcast or on the link in our Instagram bio. All right, now, that's all for that. Back to the show. We've tried, and you know, I'd be really curious to hear your strategy for this, but I guess it helps when you have a reputable news publication to get people to come on and talk to you. But we've tried reaching out to some of these public information people for these gun control groups to see if they'd come on the podcast and not debate, but just have a conversation about where we 
agree on things, how we can benefit from each other, and have yet to receive a response. Although I'd like to think I can compose a pretty professional sounding email and come off non-hostile, but it hasn't happened yet. And it's one of those things that I've had in-person conversations, whether it's on a lobby day or testifying against some proposed legislation where I've spoken to some people from Connecticut Against Gun Violence, which is a local one to where we are, from the Sandy Hook Promise, which is, again, another local one in Connecticut. And these people are normal people. And I would presume that the people who run the pages are normal people also, even though you know they might be slightly better funded normal people. You know, if you really want to make some moves and talk to people and try to reach like a common ground or at least a better understanding of where people are coming from, how do you think you approach that if they don't even want to talk to you? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And a lot of the major gun control groups are not going to, I'm sure, be interested in doing that. And to be fair, you know, I don't think you're going to get a lot of official representatives from the NRA or somewhere else to go on remotely hostile, like that you won't even get NRA people on my <laughs> podcast. It's much easier if you're an organization like that on either side to just go on friendly media and not have to deal with any sort of harder questions. That's a super common tactic, right? Uh, yeah, usually that gets overcome if your publication is big enough to demand something like that, right? Like Republicans and Democrats still have to go on Fox or CNN or MSNBC because they have a big enough platform that they view it as enough of a trade-off to go on there. And same for gun rights groups or gun control groups. Although most of the time, you're still going to see them sticking to media that's going to be easier for them. It's always hard to get, especially official representatives of certain groups to come on if they expect that you're going to be a difficult interview. You can try just looking for more reasonable people. They might not be official representative of a certain group or whatever, but you could still have the same basic conversation. Yeah, which we've definitely made, I mean, even on Instagram, which is the hardest place to reach level-headed people, but I've had people reach out to me because what I'll do regularly is go on these Instagram pages of Moms Demand Action and because I have apparently way too much time on my hands and respond to comments with, like, I would say regularly level-headed responses and see where that goes. And now I would say most of the time it doesn't go the way that I want it to, where the people who spend time on a lot of these pages, just like the people who typically follow a lot of these gun manufacturers pages and comment on them are not looking to have conversation. They're looking to say like nice gun or like, yeah, stop the kids from dying and not really have like any kind of discourse. But I've had some people reach out and say, Hey, I really appreciate you being respectful to me and explaining where you were coming from. And one person even who was openly hostile in the beginning, who eventually came around and said like, hey, thanks for being nice to me, even though I didn't deserve it. I've opened up my perspective to possibly considering this point of view and that point of view. And it's nice to hear that. But I think you're right. It might be a bit of a pipe dream to get that kind of response from some of the official representatives of these organizations. It's just, they're not going to take oftentimes those sorts of risks like unless they feel like they have to, or they get some sort of benefit for them. And it's probably getting harder, honestly, now to, especially for media, to reach media members. I mean, Twitter would have been the place to do it for the last decade or more. That's a big part of how I built my career was interacting with other media members on Twitter and taking that sort of approach that you described there of like trying to be more reasonable and less combative 
even though that does go against the grain of what really gets you a lot of followers on Twitter. Like, look, 47,000 followers is not nothing, but it's not. You go look at the bigger accounts that tweet about guns or politics. They're more often than not going to be, unless they're just already famous for other reasons, they're going to be extremely bombastic accounts that are sort of rage baiting for engagement. And that's a common thing to do on Twitter. But also, like, the Twitter's kind of shrinking now, and it's becoming more split apart. You know, you'd have to be on Twitter and Blue Sky and Threads to try and get to the same people that you used to be able to just get to on Twitter. Twitter's got the whole paid blue check thing that makes their replies rise to the top. And so it's, if you don't do that, it's harder to get seen on. And so, I don't know. You could still do it. It's not completely useless obviously i'm still on there for sure and um but it used to be more i guess level playing field than it is now and i don't know where things are going to end up it's because the trajectory for twitter doesn't look great yeah it's gotten super edgy and now it just refers to itself by one letter i've been exerting some self-control and not uh being like every time you mention twitter saying oh you mean x Oh, it's called X now? Yeah, I just refuse to call it that because it sounds so dumb. <laughs> but your posts on X. I only do it ironically. I know it's literally called X, but I call it X ironically. <laughs> I mean, you could still use it. It's still there. There's still a lot of media people on there. There's still a lot of political people on there. Maybe Threads takes over when they actually build a service on top of their skeleton <laughs> version of Twitter. But I do wonder if it's ever going to be as easy as it was when I was coming up. Because, like, I mean, this will probably sound weird to people now, but Ben Smith, who runs SEMA 4 and used to write for the New York Times, he used to run BuzzFeed Politics. And I remember he wrote a story about me. I was one of the people listed as, like, 10 people who broke into politics through Twitter or whatever. And that was, like, 2013 or something like that. Back when BuzzFeed was a thing... And Twitter was still the way that you could, like, actually launch your career as a writer by just being good at Twitter, I guess, in a sense. I don't know if that's really possible. I mean, with a lot of these trends, I was kind of on the tail end of dying trends where I was, like, just able to crest to surf that wave, like blogging, right? Like, blogging, I came up in 2008, 2009 by starting my own blog. That's how I got involved in writing about politics. Uh, I was in college at the time, and this was sort of the second wave of the blogosphere, and then you can't really do that anymore. I mean, Substack has kind of come in and recreated it to a certain degree, but it's not the same as it was when I got started, and that's how I got a job down here in D.C. It's how I got into this, and then Twitter is how I was able to like build a reputation as somebody who's knowledgeable on this topic. I mean, obviously, writing stories and breaking big stories is a big significant part of it. If I never did that, nobody would care. But in addition, interacting on Twitter was a huge part of gaining that respectability and acknowledgement from other media members, which matters a lot in a career like this. So I don't know if you can do either of those things anymore as somebody coming up. Well, God damn it, I'm not going to stop myself from wasting time trying. You guys have had pretty good success with Instagram, it seems like. So maybe that's, maybe podcasting and Instagram is the new thing for coming up. I don't know. Oh, I mean, it's every young to middle-aged white dude has a podcast nowadays. If you don't, then uh, 
I don't know. Do you even have opinions if you don't podcast about it? <laughs> I don't even know. There's this band that keeps popping up in my feed and I finally followed them. They're really funny. It's a guy and a girl and they have a song. It's just like a 15 second song and that's all their songs really are. Is just They'll post like a really shitty take from some dude on a podcast saying like, if you're not 21 and don't have $9 million in your checking account, like what are you even doing? Like what do you, I had a jet by the time I was 30 and it'll just cut to them in the backyard with like, mix tables and shit and singing another white guy with a podcast and it goes down to like this breakdown and it's just it's just them doing that over and over again but that's essentially I send it to Andrew every now and then because you know I'd like to think we have pretty decent takes on things but got to make fun of yourself though oh yeah for sure and I guess short form video is kind of the new way to come up now but these TikTok stars get millions of followers but because TikTok's algorithm doesn't care if you have followers. That's my understanding of it. I'm not, and plus, if like if you're not video based, it makes everything much harder. Like, what about text? It's much harder to come up as a text based writer. I think so. I feel like such an old person when I try to figure out TikTok because I've made a few, but I really struggle with it. And the, the people who are really good at it are really good at it. Like, you have to be familiar with the interface and what everything does and how to make it work for you. And I'm not there yet. So. My videos still look like they're made by, you know, a middle-aged dude. Yeah, we make shorts, but they're just clips of the podcast. Certainly, they don't do millions of views or anything like that. Like, yeah, we have Ian McCollum from... But it helps with your SEO. Yeah, I mean, supposedly, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. This is what everyone says, that the shorts boost your whatever. I, I don't know. Like, it's they're not hard to make in addition to what we're already doing with clips of the podcast. But, you know, I think we had a couple where Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons was on and... We did a couple shorts with him go do really well compared to a normal short. But especially if you're focused on reporting, I don't know. Like it seemed like the Washington Post does like TikTok stuff. And I know the dude who does that and they're talented at taking original reporting and making it into like comedy skit sort of basically what they do. And it's like, okay, that's great if it works but it's not something I'm going to start making comedy skits around my reporting. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, given the subject matter, it's not easy. I could try just reading straight into a camera and making a one-minute clip. Of that. That's basically what our podcast <laughs> clips are. But it's not exactly what you tend to see go viral on these things. So, I don't, yeah, I'm just saying that to me, it seems like it's harder than ever to come up as a younger reporter, at least. That's sort of the traditional pre-internet route was to like get a job at a smaller paper and then work your way up from there and then eventually get a couple of years, you can go to the bigger paper and the regional paper and then go to the big city paper. But obviously that route doesn't exist anymore in real life. And so then it was all about online reporting and maybe taking initiative to get places and networking through Twitter with other writers. And now all that also seems like it's on the way out and I don't really know what's replacing it. I actually had somebody reach out to me for an interview from a local paper out of Denver. And I did the interview I, after checking them out and going online and seeing what they were about. And I was kind of like, I don't get asked all the time to do interviews and whatnot, but I was happy to do it because I was like, here's this person out here in Denver. It was all like college kids or like just recently graduated college kids for the most part that ran this. And I was like, that's awesome. Like if this little... I don't mean little, but I mean not the New York Times or whatever, wants to hear my opinion and input on gun violence and whatnot, I'm definitely going to give that. And then I've also had Andrew talk me off of a ledge before where 
you know, I had this guy with, I think he had like 50 or 60,000 followers saying that he wanted to do a video chat with me to talk about like why trans people were evil or something like that. And, and I was like, oh, I'm obviously going to like spank this guy. Like, I don't know. But Andrew was like, you know, I think it was either him or, or one of our friends. It was like, you know, while it may seem enticing, that's not the kind of interview that you should probably be getting yourself involved with. And that's kind of more what I'm talking about. The first one there, where it's like reporter reaches out to you to get your input on a story. That's more what I mean. Like you can try and get involved by talking to them. And you can do that with people outside of reported too, but you, like I was saying earlier, you got to try and make sure that you're not getting set up to be embarrassed or something like that or being taken advantage of in some unfair way. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not super easy because not every gun rights advocate that exists is going to get called by a random reporter to give their opinion on something. So you can also email them. You can tweet at them. You know, like I said, again, in the beginning, these are reporters are human beings and so they're going to, whether, yes, reporters have a responsibility to get things right for their audience. And if they get things wrong, that is their mistake and they should own it and fix it. But obviously, if you approach them in a reasonable manner and explain to them why something they said was wrong or whatever, and you show them evidence of how it was wrong, you're going to get a lot further in helping correct the problem than if you just email mean things at them or tweet nasty stuff at them. You know what I mean? Like, that's just basic human nature. Like, yes, they have the responsibility to be accurate and to report properly and to do their research. But if you notice that they have done something wrong and you actually want to help fix this problem instead of blow off steam at them or something, and I'm sure there are some reporters out there who just don't care and aren't going to fix anyway, and whatever the interactions you have with them aren't going to matter much one way or the other. But if you're actually trying to fix the problem and you want to help this reporter improve their work, approach them with an explanation that they can understand of why the thing they said was wrong or inaccurate or whatever, and give them evidence that backs up what you're saying. Yeah, if that ever happens, and I totally agree with that, I'll probably won't be giving a video interview from my basement. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as far as like, how do you engage with like other activists or other? That's a harder question. That's kind of outside my scope because like I can interview activists on either side. And my goal with that is to try and get them to explain their points of view or to answer questions about conflicts or what have you. Or my interviews are not about trying to convince them of my point of view or, or anything like that. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit different for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Best case scenario, finding common ground isn't necessarily convincing one person to move over to the other side and agreeing there, but walking away with like a mutual understanding of where each other is coming from and having a more well-rounded view on the topic. Because I think that's something a large portion of gun owners struggle with is realizing that the people that they're arguing with or arguing about online are people and who may be deeply affected by the issue of gun violence without, you know, we're so jaded at this point of constantly being attacked that it's hard for us to come off of the defensive and not attack back. That is very helpful. As if I don't spend enough time on Twitter, I still haven't lost hope that that's a possibility for working there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it still is. As much as I think you can find news on threads now, most of it is still on Twitter. Most major accounts. I mean, you still have like, you know, I have 600 followers on threads and 47,000 on Twitter. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people still. And so it's hard to just abandon 
but your followers that you have who are expecting you to share your latest stories or whatever with them on the platform that they're on. And so that's probably still the most viable place to do something like that. Makes sense. I wanted to switch gears for a second and talk about one of the stories that you just wrote about. And this is something that personally had concerns about, and it seems like we have some good news. The Fifth Circuit's ruling on marijuana use and being a gun owner. This is something that before marijuana was legalized in Connecticut, I was close to getting my medical card. And the only reason I abandoned it was because I had heard rumors of people getting denied the renewal of their pistol permit when answering the questions on the form, either truthfully and getting denied right off the bat or lying about whether or not they used marijuana recreationally or in the case of Connecticut at the time, medicinally, which by federal government standards didn't matter. And then later getting a visit from the police or the ATF and saying, hey, we heard you smoke marijuana and also own guns. That's a no-no. The Fifth Circuit just ruled that that's unconstitutional. Yes. There was a, a case of a man in Mississippi who had been pulled over with marijuana in his car and loaded firearm and was arrested and charged for being an unlawful user of drugs while possessing a firearm. So his case was just tossed out by the Fifth Circuit by a panel there because it violates the Second Amendment under the Bruin standard, right? There's the 2022 Supreme Court case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which struck down New York's restrictive uh, so-called May-issue gun carry permitting law, but at the same time also set up a whole new test for whether or not a law violates the Second Amendment. And under that test, which looks at the history and tradition of gun regulation in the United States during the founding era when the Second Amendment was adopted for context on whether a modern law is compatible with the Second Amendment. And under that test, the Fifth Circuit said, yeah, this prohibition doesn't fit. This is because what you're talking about here is a lifetime ban on the ownership of guns at all, possession of firearms at all, for even occasional use of marijuana in this case, which doesn't fit with historical bans that focused more on people who were actively intoxicated. So there were some bans during the founding era, and actually they mostly applied to militia members. So if a militia member was on duty, they couldn't consume alcohol while they were carrying arms, sort of straightforward common sense stuff. But that is more what the tradition is under this Bruin test. And so the Fifth Circuit said, yeah, you can't just ban people for life from owning firearms at all because they have used marijuana. Yeah, it's an interesting case for a number of reasons, right? Obviously, the number one is what you just described there. Because if you think about this, there are very likely millions of Americans who both own guns and smoke weed on a regular basis. And that makes them, under federal law, felons. Uh, you know, that's a crime that's punishable by 10 years in prison. That makes them potentially felons, right? Like, to be an actual felon, you would need to be charged and convicted, right? Right, but you're committing a felony when you do that. Right, okay. I don't mean that they, in fact, it's almost never prosecuted as a standalone charge. One of the things that makes this case kind of odd is that that's all the guy was accused of. Usually these things get used, as with a lot of modern gun laws, as tack-on charges, or they get used because 
the prosecutors or cops think that somebody is doing something much worse, but they can't prove that. So they go with the easier thing to prove, which is just that they had drugs and guns. So maybe you suspect a guy of being a drug dealer, but you don't have the evidence to prove that he is. But you found him with marijuana and a gun in his car. So there you go. That's a crime. That's a felony. This also comes into play, oddly, with presidential politics. Hunter Biden, part of his plea deal, which now has apparently blown up and his peers is not going to be followed through on, but part of that deal involved a gun charge under this provision of federal law because he was caught in actually very similar circumstances to this case. He was pulled over in a rental car that I believe it had crack paraphernalia. So I think it was a pipe that was found in his car and a gun. The conspiracy theorists are going wild with this, by the way. The deal was that in addition to the tax charges that he was pleading guilty to, he was going to be given a pretrial diversion program for that gun charge. And actually, somewhat interestingly, when they went to do the plea hearing, one of the problems that the judge noted in this hearing was, I mean, apparently this was a weird way to structure a plea deal. You had sort of the tax charges and this gun charge pretrial diversion program packaged together, and the judge was kind of iffy about whether that is kosher. But also she was concerned about the gun charge itself because now the Fifth Circuit is like Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana. So this case was in Delaware, so it's a different circuit. But there was another case called Range that was decided in the Third Circuit, which includes Delaware and Pennsylvania and some other states. But that case found that nonviolent felons also could not be deprived of their gun rights for life, which is a similar provision, not the same one, obviously. That was a a case of a man who was convicted of food stamp fraud. It was like a couple thousand dollars worth of food stamps that he got when he technically didn't qualify because he made a little bit more money than the cutoff for the food stamps. But that was in the 90s, and he still can't own guns today because of this conviction because even though it was technically a state misdemeanor, it was punishable by up to five years in prison, which makes it a federal felony under this standard. Even though I never actually spent any time in jail, it was just that the potential punishment was that high. So it makes you prohibited person for life. But anyway, that was also tossed. And so this judge was like, is this even a charge you can bring anymore? And so there was some confusion about that. But kind of uh, one of the most fascinating things that could possibly happen in gun politics in this next year is that Because this plea deal fell apart, you could legitimately see Hunter Biden have to go to court over this charge. And there's already a report from the New York Times earlier this year that said he was going to use Second Amendment defense if he did have to go to court. Well, of course, because, I mean, why would you just not defend yourself so that it was, like, more politically convenient for your dad? Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, you could absolutely see a U.S. v. Biden Second Amendment case, and (laughs) it could legitimately be—now, it would be further down the line. There's obviously a lot of other cases that would be ahead of this for potential Supreme Court consideration, but it could easily get consolidated with some of these other cases as, like, something that makes it the Supreme Court as an actual—and that Hunter Biden would have a pretty good chance of winning against his father's Department of Justice. So, yeah, (laughs) a lot of stuff comes out of this one story, but yeah. Talking about bingo card things that you were not expecting. Yeah. But it would be great for political reporters who follow this 
So not so good for Hunter, I would say. I think if you're in his shoes, you'd much rather see that plea deal go through because you don't want to be the person in this big Supreme Court precedent case. That's not a pleasant experience, I would think. I'm sure. I'm sure that's not fun for anyone involved. But, you know, if I can just sort of like break character here or whatever. You were in character this whole time? No, I mean, I'm just, you know, everybody expects gun people to rip on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, but Hunter's dad cuts him a lot of slack. And it's really nice to see that kids can make mistakes and their parents still show up for them time and time again. And I'm being sincere when I say this. I think that uh, whatever happens in the Biden family, I I think that the two of them are going to be okay. Sure. You know what I think is interesting, though? I did a whole podcast on this with Pope Hat. He was a former federal prosecutor and current defense attorney. And, you know, I've talked to people about this charge. And as I mentioned earlier— Can we clarify? Pope Hat is his online persona. That's not his real name. Yes. (laughs) That is—if that needs clarifying— We should clarify. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's the thing, too, is like in the political commentary world, he's well known, but not everywhere. So, yeah, that's his like blog name. He's a legal blogger. Anyway, (laughs) I did a whole episode on this. Right. And you can look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Right. Because on the one hand, as I mentioned at the top of this, this is not a common charge, even though. In theory, this could apply to millions of people because a lot of states have legalized marijuana use, right, in the past decade or two. And so a lot of people are using marijuana who own guns, presumably. And they might not even realize that that's not legal under federal law. So in theory, the feds could be charging all kinds of people with this crime. In reality, they don't use it very often. Drew Stevenson is a professor who has studied this issue, and he he said that there are about 200 convictions a year on this charge, and most of them don't start off as the standalone charge. Most of them, like I mentioned earlier, this gets used as a tack-on or as a fallback if you can't prove the other things you want to go after the person for. On the one hand, you could say, well, most people— like. If you're a relatively well-off, middle-aged white guy, you're probably not getting charged with this at all if you're not Hunter Biden. There's not some political spotlight on you. So that's one way to look at it. Of course, on the other hand, he kind of forced them to do this in a sense. And this also came out in that hearing, the plea deal hearing, right? Because they mentioned in the pretrial diversion that he had said he was using crack every 15 minutes during the time period when he bought this gun. Holy shit. Ouch. And the reason we know that he said that is because he published a book, a memoir, about that period of his life. Because the problem was, like, people knew about the drug use. There was the laptop that came out, and there was all the pictures and all this stuff that's out there, right? And there's all kinds of junk. But all that stuff, like, ended, as far as the, you know, what's publicly available, paper trail kind of stuff, pictures and videos and crap, before this period where he bought this gun. That was all like 2016. This was like 2018 when he bought the gun. And and so there wasn't necessarily a direct evidence of him still using at this period. And oftentimes this charge, you have to be continually using, you have to be addicted. But Hunter Biden, and this has become a bit of a trend among our political elites, right? If you remember the Trump tape of him talking about the classified documents that he's waving them around, and he's like, look at these classified documents. I could have (laughs) unclassified these, but I didn't, and so these are still classified, but look at them. And he's on tape doing this. Well, Hunter Biden is a very similar situation because he's like, in my book, 
uh, yeah, 2018, that's when I was doing crack all the time. And it's like... <laughs> Conveniently, also when I bought a gun. Yeah, well, that's a problem because then what are these prosecutors supposed to do? If you don't charge him, that's kind of force them into that situation. But of course, you know, you can look at Hunter Biden, you can look at all the things around him and you can think, why is he getting misdemeanor charges on things that could be felonies? Why is he getting pretrial diversion? Even if you look at the charges in context of what he was specifically charged with and accused of, they might be not as crazy as some people might suggest, but then there's all this other stuff that comes along with Hunter Biden. There's sort of a Hunter Biden cinematic universe that exists of all these other things that to the general public look like crimes. And so, you know, it just depends on your perspective, I guess, right? Where it's like, okay, on the one hand, this is a charge that maybe wouldn't have gotten brought at all in a lot of circumstances. On the other hand, maybe there's a bunch of other stuff that would have gotten brought instead of the couple things that he did get for this plea deal. And of course, now we're just going to have to see what happens because they made that prosecutor a special prosecutor. And in theory, this deal could fall apart and he could get charged with a bunch of other stuff. It's a whole thing. But the main reason it's interesting to me, (laughs) at least, is because it comes at this time when the federal law that he's going to be charged under, if it happens, is the validity of that is being questioned for really the first time ever. And legitimately, if he goes to court over this, he might win on a Second Amendment defense because that's exactly what happened in this Fifth Circuit case. Yeah, that would absolutely be wild. I feel like, yeah, unlikely hero, for sure. Oh, it would be pretty freaking out there if that's (laughs) how this happens. I can only imagine the memes coming out of that. I find it hilarious from a just the, the social commentary from this whole situation. You've got this guy who, in any other light, would kind of be seen as this like rock star. He's got guns and cocaine and strippers and he's like partying (laughs) all the time and normally be like a conservative hero. If he had an acoustic guitar, he'd be platinum in like days, you know? But because it's Hunter Biden, it's kind of like Hillary's emails turned into this like weird meme thing. There's a little bit of contextual irony there where it's like, so he's smoking crack. His dad is one of the biggest drug warriors in American history He's flashing guns. His dad is one of the biggest gun control proponents in history. And that's where a lot of that comes in, right? It's like, that's the other half of it. It's not just interesting because it's the president's son who might set a Second Amendment precedent, but also the son of a president who's one of the most aggressive gun control advocates we've ever had. Like, if Joe Biden was like, I'm the guns and crack president, legalize it all, then, like, we would not be shocked at Hunter Biden's behavior. I'm guns and crack president. That's a platform to run on. (laughs) That's going to be my platform. (laughs) (laughs) All the guns and all the crack. Yeah, we'll have to see. That'll definitely be wait until the end of the credits at the end of the Marvel movie and see what comes out. Thank you for putting those pieces together for me, Stephen. I had never once considered that he would be this unsung hero for the Second Amendment, but it is entirely possible. Not to spoil the whole thought experiment of this, but I would still think that the plea deal is going to be the how this all turns out. I, I just, it's hard for me not to, like, he's got a lot of incentive to just take this deal. It might not be the crazy sweetheart deal that some Republicans have made it out to be, but also it's not a bad deal, I would say. Like, he doesn't go to jail in this deal. You don't want to risk going to jail if you can get a deal that keeps you out of jail. Now, obviously, the I think one of the big hangups is whether the deal protects him from other potential charges in other areas. And so maybe him and his lawyers will determine it's not worth it. But there's some like conspiracy stuff about, uh, what is it, Burisma? There's all kinds of stuff that's well outside of my wheelhouse. Like I was saying earlier, like 
the whole cinematic universe thing with Hunter Biden. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not an expert on all of it. So all I can really talk about is the gun bit. And I followed that a little bit. But uh, I would expect that it would just be too crazy if it ends up the scenario I described where it becomes like a Supreme Court thing. And it's U.S. v. Biden is the new precedent after Bruin. Like, that would make me feel like we're in a simulation or something. (laughs) Well, honestly, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised. And even if it's not plausible, a guy can dream. That's going to be my dream right there. I'm going to put that as my bio on Twitter and just be like, one day Hunter Biden will be our gun rights savior, and you can't take that from me at all. And with that, Stephen, I can't thank you enough. We can't thank you enough. I'll speak for Andrew for coming on the show and talking to us a couple goofballs and really providing such a benefit, I think, to the gun community in general with the reload.com and your ability to be used on a news station like CNN. So it's probably a way more eloquent way of saying that, but we appreciate what you're doing and what you continue to do and appreciate you coming on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the podcast that you guys are doing, and so I'm happy to be able to come on and talk a little bit. I like to go out and talk to as many people as I can, so... I'm always glad when the response is positive and people want to have me on and have a conversation. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's I have to say that when you were first sharing links in our Instagram DMs, I didn't put two and two together that you were the one writing them. And I felt like a complete idiot. when you. I think you had to spell it out to me. You're like, I just wrote this art. I think you said it more than once. You're like, I just wrote this article on this. And I remember reading and being like, damn, that was a good article. Thanks for sharing this with me, random guy or whatever. And like, <laughs> and then putting two and two together and being like, oh, this is the, he's the author. Like he's the writer for this. And <laughs> I think you had shared one of the reload stories and I was like, oh yeah. Or you shared like a screenshot of the headline or something. I was like, this is a good story. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> what I said. I think it was like, oh, that's a good website. You guys, that's a, seems like a smart guy. <laughs> but he like went over his head. <laughs> it definitely did. He was like, hey, uh, Steven Gutowski wants to do an episode. I was like, fuck off. Don't lie to me. (laughs) I was so lost. So when I tell you that my life is like, I feel like my life is consumed by the page in a better way too, in a good way, but while simultaneously being as ill-informed as possible with like some of the other people in the community. So this is the thing. Jordan is not like very online. Jordan, you know, he has his family, he has his job, he has his, like, views and his politics, and he runs the page. I didn't know who Carl from InRange TV was. Like, when, it was a while before we had him on. I knew who he was when we had him on, but I remember Andrew being like, oh, I've been watching his videos for years, like, 10 years or something, and I was like, I started watching, like, a month ago. And Carl, I'm surprised you were able to corral him to get him on, because he literally called me out in one of his videos to connect and have him on and I tried and I still can't get a hold of him. He's, he's, he's a hard guy to get a hold of. Well, to be fair, he's very difficult. Like we've been in a, like an Instagram group chat and I'll say something. I actually was just reminded of this because they just had high desert brutality. And I remember it being like, Hey, yeah, I would love to submit some prizes for high desert. And I don't think the message has even been seen by him. He seems like a super busy guy. I've met him a couple of times at shot. Nice dude, for sure. So is Ian. Ian's a really great guy. I've had him on my podcast a couple of times. He's super knowledgeable dude, but uh, like both of those guys. And, you know, a number of other gun tubers I've met, a, I've been able to meet a number of them. You know, I just like what you guys are bringing to the table, something, a different perspective than what you see in a lot of other gun media. So I always appreciate that in terms of, like, trying to hear from new people. You know, I've, I've been out to, like, 
the liberal gun clubs annual meetings. Those guys are really interesting and fun to be around. And I've hung out with National African American Gun Association guys, the just so many different, uh, I've been to a Girl on the Guns annual meeting, their annual conference, go to GRPC every year, Gun Rights Policy Conference. I'll be speaking there this year for anyone who's listening and going to be in attendance, feel free to say hi, but it's going to be in Phoenix this year. It travels around. There's your reason to go back to Arizona, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good conference. I recommend it. It's more of an activist conference, you know, than like NRA or SHOT Show. I just think that people have a very narrow view of gun ownership in America and who owns guns. And that's only just starting to change in people's minds since 2020. There's more of an emphasis on new gunners and from new demographics and new backgrounds and new perspectives. But it's really something that's been changing for a while now. It just kind of accelerated around the pandemic. And so I'm always interested to see when groups come up or pages or channels or whatever that are different that are approaching things differently. And that intrigues me. I think it's interesting. So, uh, so I've been watching you guys for a while now and some of the stuff you do. And, and yeah, I've enjoyed the podcast and I'm glad that you guys were able to make time for me. Absolutely. Well, it's, I don't know if we mentioned this, but you gave us your availability yesterday and we were like, okay, today, today works because Andrew and I, my life are just crazy hectic between childcare and work and whatnot, but we're super happy that we were able to make this work last minute and, Got an absolute banger of an episode out of it. Before we let you go, we do this with all of our guests. We have to ask you, if you had a piece of life advice to give, and it doesn't necessarily have to be gun-related, it could be related to anything, what would that life advice be? Trying to pursue your goals with as much vigor as you possibly can. You know, People, I think, sometimes let opportunities slip by when they could take them. That's what I've always tried to do in my life and it's brought me success and uh, maybe that's survivorship bias but uh, it's something that you know I'd recommend to people like I saw an opening for this publication and I took it and it's working out and so you know if you see something like that in your life you should pursue it and don't sue me if it goes wrong though also it's <laughs> not legal advice Stephen Gutowski told me to pursue <laughs> this with vigor and now I have one less limb I am in jail <laughs> <laughs> Instructions unclear. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, use common sense for sure. But that's a great. <laughs> that is a great piece of advice, man. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on. And uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of you. I'm gonna subscribe to your website. I don't know why I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to absolutely do that because I love supporting people who are doing good work, and that'll happen. It was worth it, then. I got a sale. Got a membership. Just coming in and <laughs> sitting down and, and talking <laughs> yeah. to some goofballs for a couple hours. We've had you here for two and a half hours. I think that's sufficient. <laughs> well, the Phillies weren't playing tonight, so it's, yeah, no Philly sports. That's another, we didn't get into any of this, but that's another big part of my, my whole personality. I'm very big into Philly sports. We could talk about that sometime. I don't have much to contribute, but I like talking to people about things that they're passionate about. So maybe over a beer. I love that you love that. I love that you love that. Yeah. I'm going to say this and then I'll leave. <laughs> I'll just leave. I had someone do something to me, and I won't say his name just because I don't know if he wants me to, but it was hilarious and possibly the most thoughtful thing that somebody's ever done before they've gone on a rant about something. He was one of the RSOs at Woodland Brutality, and he said that his wife gave him a piece of advice before he started talking about something, and I forget what the topic was. I think it was like something about like the material and asphalt or something that would otherwise seem kind of dry. 
And he stopped right before he went into it and said, do you want me to go into this? Do you want me to explain myself here? And he's like, my wife told me to ask people that before I go into something because otherwise I'll waste their time if they don't want to listen. And I was like, wow, that was a really good piece of advice. Like, do you want me to continue? (laughs) I was like, yes, please do. But thank you again, Stephen. Wish you the best. Can't wait to get together and do some cool stuff one day. Yeah, I'd love to come back on sometime in the future too. Absolutely. We have a running list of people that we have to do part deal with and uh, we'll definitely add you to that. Oh,